society has come to grant an authority to feelings over the body that is unprecedented in Western society. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Today we're delighted to have with us Dr. Carl Truman. We'll talk about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And after that, we'll have an edition of Ask the Profs, in which we answer your questions. Uh, we were tempted to call this episode The Truman Show, but we were concerned about copyright issues. You have to be careful with these things. The budget is tight when it yes. comes to legal matters. So even before we get into this conversation with Dr. Truman, we do want to even open the episode with a question for asking the prof. So, Dr. Keithley, let me start with this, and then we'll close the episode as well with another question. I hear Christians saying that the vaccine has something to do with setting up the Antichrist. The question simply then is this, not necessarily the mark of the beast, but a precursor to it, perhaps, in your opinion, which I highly agree with most of the time. That's very kind of him. Which I highly, does your wife say that to you, Dr. Keithley? Uh, about 80% of the time. Okay. Well, we'll have to have a podcast on that other 20%. Here's the question. Is there anything connected between vaccines and the mark of the beast? The quick answer is No. When one takes a look at what is actually said in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 17, it makes it very clear that the mark of the beast has nothing to do with medicine or with vaccines. Vaccines have been around for, in one way or another, for hundreds of years, and so has the controversy uh, surrounding them. When smallpox inoculations first were introduced in the 1700s, they were controversial then. And in fact, uh, certain ministers, I'm thinking of Cotton Mather, he advocated the getting of the inoculations, and people resisted back then. In fact, some people resisted so strongly that someone threw a grenade through his living room window. Mm. Obviously, they did not agree with him. And there was an element of risk. Jonathan Edwards received a smallpox inoculation, and he died mm -hmm. from, yeah. from that. So we're not saying that the vaccines are risk-free. We're saying the risk-reward ratio is so powerfully in favor of getting the vaccines that it is the wise decision, and it is the best choice, uh, best direction of action. So not only smallpox, we think of the polio vaccine. When I was a little boy, the polio vaccine was made available to the public. And I remember standing in line to get the little sugar cube that gave me the vaccine. Mm. Nobody worried about taking the mark of the beast or somehow that there was associated with the Antichrist at that time. It was simply recognized for what it was, something that was a great public good. And that's what I would say about the vaccine today. And to go back to Revelation chapter 13, no one is going to take the mark of the beast accidentally. As the passage makes it very clear, the mark of the beast is something that is a deliberate act of devotion. And so therefore, I don't think anyone has to worry that somehow they're going to inadvertently, through some type of medical procedure, 
find out that they have received a curse from the Lord. It's just not going to happen that way. So to, to clarify on that, so you're saying very simply, vaccines are not mark of the beast. Masks are not mark of the beast. It's unfair and unwise to make those kinds of connections. The mark of the beast, however, it, this is a real thing. This really does show up in Revelation 13. And the ways that we might think of it are not that we're somehow it's going to be smuggled into our lives and you're going to find out later that you accidentally did this, but rather it will be an intentional decision on behalf of the person who receives that, whatever it is. Whatever it is, and that is not something that is new. Yeah. Uh, from the time of uh, the first century up to this present day, I think of certain ones that are involved with the ministry of this podcast. Uh, they, their government gave them a choice, renounce Christ or lose your life. And those who receive the mark of the beast are those who are left with that choice. Mm. Renounce Christ or lose your livelihood. You know, it's Christ or the world. Which one is it? And the fact of the matter is each and every person finds himself or herself facing that choice, even though it's not something quite so explicit as a mark on your hand or your forehead. Everyone has to choose. Mm. What shall I do with Jesus Christ? Will I gain the world and lose my soul? Or will I gain Christ and say no to the world? One does not have to find himself explicitly in a Revelation 13 situation to recognize that all of us have that choice at one time or another. I think it is safe to say Western culture is rapidly changing. Gay marriage is legal and celebrated. Transgenderism is on the rise. One's pronouns are now up for debate. My daughter even started a new middle school this past week, and within the first eight days, she was asked if she was bisexual. This is the world that we live in, and in many ways, cultural norms look vastly different than they did even 10 years ago. Many evangelicals, Dr. Keithley, as you and I hear often, ask all kinds of questions about this, but not least of which, how did we get here? How did we get here? That is the question. That is the subject of a new book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Now, that's a long title, Dr. Truman, I'll have to tell you. Dr. Truman is with us this week on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're glad to have him with us for our podcast this morning. Dr. Truman is a graduate of the universities of Cambridge and Aberdeen. He formerly served on the faculty at the universities of Nottingham and Aberdeen and Westminster Theological Seminary here in the States. Before joining Grove City College faculty in 2018, he was the William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. He's married with two adult sons. He's an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Truman. It's delightful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let's start off with this sentence. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, that is a provocative line to start your book. Why begin there, and what was your point? I began there because I think that is a dramatic statement that is profoundly counterintuitive, and it's something that has only become commonly accepted as, as coherent in the last few years. And yet its dramatic counterintuitiveness raises the question of how come this sentence that even 10 or 15 years ago would have been regarded as, as arrant nonsense by most people has come to be seen as, as coherent, as stating truth. 
Indeed, more than that, has come to be seen as something the denial of which might render one vulnerable to social, even legal sanctions in some quarters. I think my grandparents would have found the sentence incomprehensible. And so what you're saying is, is how did a sentence that was probably incomprehensible 50 to 75 years ago in a general public, or at least bizarre, how did it become normative? How did it become? So that is the question. How did it become normal? Well, it's, it's a long and complicated story. I think, first of all, it's worth reflecting on what the statement implies. The statement clearly implies a separation of what we now call gender, whether you're male or female, from the body, from bodily sex, whether you have male sexual characteristics or female sexual characteristics. Well, that's part of a bigger separation, we might say, that's taken place in Western culture, whereby our bodies have become increasingly separated or increasingly accidental to our identity. What we've seen over the last 100, 200, 300 years is an increasing prioritization of inner feelings. Perhaps I could draw out By using an example, if I'd gone to a doctor 100 years ago and said to them, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would probably have said to me, well, that's a problem. Uh, It's a problem with your mind. We need to treat your mind in order to bring it into line with your body. If you go to your doctor and say that today, your doctor is likely to say, well, that's a problem. It's a problem with your body. We need to bring your body into line with your mind, with your feelings. When you compare those two scenarios, what has gone on is society has come to grant an authority to feelings over the body that is unprecedented in Western society. Unprecedented in Western society. You and I have had several conversations over the last couple of days, and I've heard you say that one of the goals you have when you're teaching your students today at Grove City College is how to address the question, how is it that faith seems difficult in the 21st century, but it seems so natural in the 16th? Is that a parallel question, or is there a great deal of overlap there? There's certainly a parallel and perhaps an overlap between the two in that one could argue that what's happened in the last four or five hundred years in Western culture has been an increasing dis-ease with, an increasing uh, impatience with notions of external authority. If you lived in the Middle Ages, belief was easy because the world was fixed, the authorities were fixed, the church was, was solid and undivided. Uh, its authority was essentially uncontested in any significant way. So... Believing was easy because believing was not contested. Authorities were authorities. What we now see in the modern world is a situation where external authority has become increasingly tenuous at all levels. Uh, When you think of the the great institutions of Western society, nation, family, church, all of them are contested now. All of them are in some degree uh, experiencing some degree of, of fluidity, even volatility that makes external authority more complicated. And then when you bring the transgender question in, we might say that transgenderism is the latest iteration of this discomfort with external authority that even our own bodies are not to have any authority over who we actually are. So I would say there's a parallel in terms of the fate of external authority in Western society. Well, you make much of how the medieval world thought and how we think today as moderns and how fundamentally different that is. 
In a minute, I'm going to ask you if the Enlightenment was a Christian heresy. But in between there was something called the Reformation. And as I heard you talk about that, there are a significant number of people who put the blame on the Reformers. Uh, They said they opened up the Pandora's box. I have the quote here that Luther said at the Diet of Worms, where he says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not, cannot recant anything that goes against conscience, because it's neither right nor safe. Now, when we parse his sentence, he very clearly argues for scriptural authority. However, he also throws in plain reason and conscience. And that brings up the point that, yes, the Bible is the final authority, but I am interpreting the Bible. So you are a Reformation scholar. Is that a fair complaint? I think the question of the, of the role of the Reformation in this transformation of how we think of ourselves and how we think about authority, that's a very important question. There are a couple of things that I would say in that context. First of all, the Reformation doesn't cause the Reformation. Mm-hmm. So it's typically Roman Catholic scholars who want to blame the Reformation for modernity. I would say, well, the Reformation was the response to the collapse of medieval Catholic authority that was not caused by Martin Luther. It was caused by the chaos that is late medieval Catholicism. So, you know, the problem of the starting point is wherever you start the story, you can always blame the previous generation. So that's a general historical as, point. As, as young people today are blaming boomers. Yes, I mean, you can blame boomers, but maybe it was the generation before. Or Trump would be a good example. Yeah. Trump divided the country. Well, no, Trump is a function of an already divided country. He may not have helped heal the division, but President Trump didn't cause President Trump. Let me ask you about that, kind of this whole cause and effect thing as it relates to where we are now. I want to bring this down to especially just our, our common lay people, listeners, Oftentimes we'll hear this kind of a critique, and it's, it's meant well, and it's even to some degree mm. thoughtful, even if uninformed. It'll go something like this. If we could just get back to that day, that in many of their minds, it's the Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith, Mary Tyler Moore, where the most edgy stuff that we're seeing in culture is happy days because teenagers are kissing on public television, right? As opposed to where we are now, where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to screen the teenage uh, shows that are on now. I'm thinking of one in particular that's a mature audience. I, my wife and I wouldn't watch that, much less our teenagers yeah. watch that. And we tend to say, or I tend to hear it this way, the cause of that is the sexual revolution. But is it actually the cause or is it a symptom of something much deeper and older? Well, first of all, uh, I'm delighted you mentioned happy days. <laughs> when I tell my students that in the 1970s, the most famous cities in America were New York, Los Angeles, and Milwaukee. Yes. <laughs> they have no idea how Milwaukee gets in, but of course yes. it's the Fonz and Richie, et cetera, et cetera. The Fonz so. is still maybe the coolest guy on the I last think hundred he was years. Undoubted, until he jumped the shark, he yeah. was the coolest Jumping man the, the shark was a terrible mistake. <laughs> it was. It, it, yeah. When it's over, it's over, as they say. Uh, I think there's certainly some blame to be laid on the sexual revolution. That uh, what I might say is the, the specific idioms through which what it means to be a human being are now expressed, the sexual idioms, are very much supercharged in the, in the really the late 50s and then the 60s onwards, where the way we express ourselves is seen to be primarily sexual. Having said that, I think that I, I use the term idiom there very self-consciously, because I think what you have is a sexual way of expressing an understanding of what it means to be human that predates the sexual revolution. And that understanding is what 
uh, a philosopher like Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. Now, expressive individualism may not be a term that your listeners are familiar with, but essentially what it means is this, that to be genuinely you, you have to be able to act out that which you feel you are inside. So the real you, if you like, is your feelings. And you achieve personal authenticity. You become really you when you're able to act outwardly in a manner consistent with those inner feelings. Take the example of Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner and the interview that uh, Jenna did with Diane Sawyer in 2015. The language that Jenna uses there is, is now I'm finally free to be myself. Now I no longer have to play the role that society has imposed upon me. Transgenderism is an extreme example, but it brings out nicely the way that most of us are trained to think about ourselves today. Mm. We're trained to think about ourselves as our inner feelings. And we are most genuinely us when we are able to act outwardly in accordance with those inner feelings. Mm. And that's not an entirely bad thing. We have words like hypocrite to describe those who are one thing on the inside and and act out something else on the outside. But it's to say, taken to its logical conclusion, what you get is the banalities of reality television, the sexually explicit nature of teenage TV programs. Uh, the rather explicit and almost pornographic nature of, of yeah. culture as we now find it. It seems like David Brooks in his book Road to Character talks about the sacred self as the one thing it seems to be in culture. That is kind of the sacred cow. You can question anything else and you can say I'm wrong about anything else except for when I say this is what my authentic self is, that's the thing that you can't, that's the untouchable. Yeah, you have to be true to yourself. Right. That's the watchword of the modern day. So as a Christian and as a, as a pastor, so you, you pastored for six years in Philadelphia in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You have someone in your congregation come forward wrestling with this kind of thing. How do you advise a congregation generally and then deal with the specifics case by case? First of all, I would advise congregants to have a good grasp of the broader, what I call cultural pathologies, the broader ways the that the culture thinks, the broader intuitions of the culture. We cannot escape from the culture in which we find ourselves, but merely being aware that the world is cultural and not just natural, that the way we're trained to think by society is a way of thinking. It's not the way the world is. I think that's uh, important. Once we know the nature of the water in which we swim, we're able to, to some degree, compensate for that. Secondly, I think the church as a whole needs a good grasp of the whole counsel of God. I'm a big believer in scriptural sufficiency. Not that that means I can go to the Bible and find every question I ever ask directly answered by a verse. Mm. But I think the Bible gives me a framework for understanding reality that allows me to address the specific challenges that any given culture Mm. uh, throws up. Give an example, gay marriage. Uh, in the circles in which I operate, Presbyterian circles, was certain uh, push at some point for do we need to add to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the confessional yeah. theological standard of the Presbyterian denominations, do we need to add a section on gay marriage to that? To which my answer would be no, because actually the Westminster Confession of Faith clearly teaches what marriage is, mm. and that excludes everything that marriage isn't. Mm. So if we learn our tradition well, and we're familiar with the Bible, we should actually be better equipped for dealing with the the incidental specific challenges of the culture in which we find ourselves Mm. in a pretty good way, actually. So I would counsel pastors and I would counsel congregants, focus on learning the whole counsel of God. That's good. So you talk about how 
today, Feelings Reign. In your book, you give such a great historical overview of how we got here. You talk about the two Genevans, John Calvin, who most of our listeners will be familiar with, but also Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Who was he? How is he the person that has had perhaps the greatest influence on their life that they've never heard of? Yeah, Rousseau is an interesting figure. He's an 18th century Genevan philosopher. He was self-taught. I mean, man's clearly a genius. He's self-taught, and yet he, has, he, he leaves his fingerprints on an awful lot of aspects of Western culture. Everything from educational theory to political theory has been shaped by Rousseau. Rousseau is the man who, more than anybody else, sharply articulates the idea that, let's put it bluntly in modern terms, that it's society that messes you up, that we are corrupted by the social conventions and the social competition in which we find ourselves as individuals. So every time you you hear somebody say, well, that person uh, did that because of their background, because of the way they were brought up, that's a kind of Rousseau sort of thought. Uh, And Rousseau is very much of the idea that human beings in and of themselves are naturally good. It's society that twists and perverts those good instincts. Uh, And therefore, for example, the purpose of education is not the purpose that I experienced when I was at school. You you go to school as a little savage, and the school shatters your savagery. Positively Augustinian. uh, Yeah, the the purpose of school is, is to crush your individuality and to make you a decent member of society. Rousseau would say, no, the purpose of education is to... Uh, really in some ways to get out of the way of the individual, being able to grow up into who they truly are. Be all that you can be. When when I read Rousseau, I think, man, Pelagius would be proud. Yeah, uh, he has a very optimistic understanding of human nature. What is the Enlightenment and how does it impact this conversation? The Enlightenment emerges really in the 17th, 18th centuries, and it's it's a term we now use to embrace a whole variety of different thinkers who are essentially wrestling with questions of of individual authority, questions of how we know things, questions about how do we build uh, morality in the light of the fracturing, the breakdown of ecclesiastical authority. Key figure would be Immanuel Kant, and, and his famous essay, What is Enlightenment?, would be the place to go to in order to have the Enlightenment defined. There are a number of interesting images or analogies that Enlightenment thinkers consistently use when they're thinking about their own work. Uh, They'll often refer to the Enlightenment as a dawn, a dawning. Or in in Kant's, uh, Kant will talk about it as a coming of age, a growing to adulthood. So this is an overthrowing of biblical authority, and this brings out a whole new dawn. Yeah, but it essentially places human beings, we might say, at the center Mm -hmm. and makes human beings ultimately the, the standard of truth and authority. So then you talk about the rise of the plastic self. What do you mean by that expression? Plastic self, this idea that in its, in, its, in its most crude modern form, that you can be whatever you want to be. Again, when you go back to the Middle Ages, you know, what would it have meant to be an individual in the Middle Ages? Well, you would have been born into a very fixed society. The ways in which you learned your identity would have been external and fixed. You'd probably have been born, lived and died in the same village, been baptized, married and buried in the same church your family would have had a fairly fixed structure. Uh, Nothing much changes. The whole idea of social mobility, for example, virtually non-existent in the Middle Ages. Our sense of self is typically connected to other things external to ourself. 
Well, what we have in the modern world, I think, is the confluence of two things that make us plastic, that make us think that our self is not fixed. It's something that we can invent. One is this emphasis on inner feeling, this granting of authority to the inner rather than the outward, which we, we noted early on. And secondly, the fact that a lot of the outward structures that would typically have provided us with a sense of self or identity, geographical space, institutions, they are now in a state of flux. And these two things combine to make the self a very problematic and fluid kind of thing. So now this emphasis upon the self and this fluid understanding of the, of the person, we now have where gender reassignment is a major item and topic uh, through drug regimens, surgical procedures. Mm. I always find it remarkable uh, the dependence on technology to accomplish this task. That seems to be unexplored or underappreciated. I find that remarkable that it's all about this, I got to truly be me, but it's going to depend upon all of the marvels of modern science to get me there. Why is it that they don't seem to understand or recognize the inner incoherence to that way of thinking? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very disturbing. And you know, one of the points I try to make in my book is that we tend to relate to the world in an imaginative way. We're not always thinking back to first principles. We, we have an intuitive understanding of the world and ourself within it. We, we imagine the world to be a certain way. And what technology has done, of course, is massively expanded the range of options that we can imagine for ourselves. Take sexual activity, for example. In the 19th century, sex was risky. It was risky because, A, the girl could get pregnant. B, you could pick up a very nasty disease that couldn't be cured. So that meant that the whole idea of a, a radically promiscuous life was not one that was imaginable by most people because the risks were just too great. Antibiotics and the pill make it imaginable to live the life of a, you know, a wild and promiscuous man cost-free. The same with, as you mentioned, uh, gender reassignment, or as we now sometimes refer to as gender confirmation. That only becomes plausible in a world where we have surgery and hormones that allows us to gerrymander the makeup, the chemical and physical makeup of our bodies, such that we can pretend to be women when we're actually men or can pretend to be men when we're actually women. It's the technology that expands our imagination on that. Aware of the problem, I think, goes back to this idea that, well, we're free human beings and we're made up of our inner feeling. External authority has no purchase on us. And the inability to understand that there's something greater than ourselves, and that if we are the sum total of, of my identity. For, for example, as you just talked about, there are those who look upon sex as a recreational activity. At the very same time, they find their sexual identity as the apex of who they are. Yeah. Well, it would seem to me that if my sexual identity is the apex of who I am, the last thing I want to do is treat it simply as a recreational event. Yeah. But that incongruence doesn't seem to be realized by a large portion of our society. That's true, but I think every now and then you, know, you get mugged by reality. Technology trains us to think and to imagine the world as just stuff that we can impose our will on. The problem is the world is not just stuff that we can impose our will on. And so you know, this, that, the example you've used is an excellent one because, yeah, on the one hand, sex is recreation. On the other hand, sex is central to my identity. So what happens is you get strange anomalous phenomena occurring in society, such as, for example, the hashtag Me Too movement. 
being promoted most vigorously by, by whom? By Hollywood. Hollywood has gone out of its way to present sex as a harmless, cost-free recreational activity and yet has had to acknowledge the fact that we've been preaching a lie. Yes. We've been Real people have been really hurt. Yeah, and we understand that intuitively because, you know, I, I'm not going to do this, but, it, you know, but if I slapped your face, mm-hmm. you'd probably have me escorted off campus by security. That would be a very unpleasant thing to do. But in three weeks' time, it would be nothing other than an amusing or ironic anecdote that you'd tell people after dinner. Oh, I had this Truman character on campus, and he slapped my face out of the blue. It would not damage you. If you were sexually assaulted by somebody, it would mark you for life because it would strike in a very deep way at your personal integrity in a way that a mere slap does not. So we all intuitively know actually, that sex is more than a recreational activity, even though we try to live that way. So the title of your book, even, and and the focus of the book, giving so much attention to this notion of the self. We tend to think this way intuitively all the time, whether we talk this way or not, myself, thyself, and so on and so forth. And that's also part of what's so complicated about this conversation. From a Christian perspective, then, what what is the self? How should we think about thyself? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that that a Christian should think about relative to the way the modern self is pressed upon us. First of all, we're made in the image of God. And that means that we cannot think of human nature simply as a biological phenomenon. And this is a shift, really, I think, that takes place mainly in the 19th century, uh, where human nature ceases to have any moral structure and becomes just a biological thing. So, Being a human being carries with it certain biological restrictions. I can't jump off the top of a building, flap my arms and fly, but doesn't place me under any moral obligation to something larger than my individual desires, we might say. To the extent those obligations exist, they are purely the result of a sort of contract of individuals that we enter into as a society. So the first thing I think Christians need to realize is that's wrong. Human nature comes with a moral structure. That's the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2. Secondly, I think we need to realize that the self is not first and foremost an independent, autonomous, self-determining entity. The self is first and foremost that which is defined by dependency upon others and upon obligations towards others. Rousseau has this statement that has to be the most easily refutable statement in the history of philosophy, Mm. but has come to grip the imagination as a truth, even though it is patently false. And that is, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. No man is born free. If you take a newborn baby and drop it off in the woods, that baby will be dead in 48 to 72 hours if he or she lasts that long. Human beings of all creatures on the face of the planet are peculiarly dependent upon others when they're born. And our lives are marked throughout by relationships of dependency and obligation. Once I'm a father, then I have an obligation to my children Mm. to raise them, to bring them up. Dare I say it, I have an obligation to be faithful to my wife Mm. in order to provide a stable home to bring up my children. So I would say that the next move that Christians have to make after they've realized, yeah, we have a moral structure, is to realize that what characterizes this moral structure more than anything else in terms of the the created, the, the, the horizontal realm, is dependency and obligation relative to others. The idea that we are born free and autonomous is self-evident rubbish. 
And many of the problems we now see in society are predicated, are built upon buying into that nonsense. So let me press into that. I just to be provocative for a minute. If that's if what you're saying is true, that means I can't define myself. And everybody in the world is telling me you can define, be who you want to be, define yourself, and so on. How, how do you address that? I would say self-evidently you can't define yourself. We all have to define ourselves in relation to other people. If I was, let's just say theoretically that. I could be a newborn baby, abandoned on a desert island and not rescued for 30 years. If a ship pulls in and rescues me after 30 years, I'm feral. I don't have any language. I don't have any meaningful consciousness of myself as a self at that point. Mm -hmm. The very idea that the, the, the fact that we can think, well, I can be whatever I want to be, that rests upon language. That rests upon prior social relations that already exist, that put the lie to the fact that we can be whatever we want to be. No, human selves only really exist in relation to other selves. So we're not just selves, we're persons. Yeah. And persons are relational by yeah. their very nature. Yeah. We've been listening to and talking to Dr. Carl Truman. His book is The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Dr. Truman, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE, all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Dr. Keithley, once again, it's time for uh, Ask the Profs, a segment in which you ask us questions, and we do our best to answer them, whether it's about theology, culture, pastoral ministry, family, food, whatever it is. We like to answer fun questions. Dr. Keithley, here's the question today. We tend to talk about uh, what we call theological triage, mm -hmm. triage being every theological issue is not of equal importance or of equal weight. So we think of it as primary, secondary, tertiary kind of issues. But how do we go about distinguishing what's primary, what's secondary, what's tertiary? I think this is uh, one of the issues that really does distinguish uh, an evangelical from perhaps the other perspectives. Um, you think of someone—you you mentioned um, uh, the theological triage, first order, second order, third order. Uh, typically, first order are those orders that uh, are of eternal significance. If one does not affirm who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, uh, let's face it, it's not just that you may be wrong, you, uh, your soul may be in peril. Um, and so that that's of first order in, importance. Uh, third order is the easy to deal with also. It's because it's those items that they're interesting to talk about over the coffee table, uh, but we're not going to go start a new denomination over it. And so these are items that 
uh, should not cause any kind of riff within a church staff or a small group or a church. Uh, the more difficult ones are the ones in between, mm -hmm. uh, the second order, in which, yes, I recognize that uh, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but it may be a challenge uh, to start a church together. Yeah. And so there's a lot of associations and fellowships that we have that recognize um, uh, that we have brothers and sisters in other denominations, and they truly are our brothers and sisters. Now, going back to this idea of first order and third order, the tendency of, of a fundamentalist is to see everything as, as a first order. I'm going to have to divide with you over mm -hmm. this. You know, we're going to have to separate. The tendency of a liberal is to see everything as a third order item. It's just, you know, we just have a broad tent and everything. Can't we all just get along? As an evangelical, we do affirm the reality of this hierarchy, this pyramid. It's a balancing act, not saying we always do it well, but we recognize it's one that we're called to do. Yeah, that's really helpful, especially the way that you started talking about things that are of eternal significance. That's a good way to start, just to help to filter out and to provide a fulcrum for what is this, a first, second, third order matter. I often think about it, too, as first question that I ask is, okay, who, are, who am I talking to? And if I'm talking to someone outside of my tradition as a Baptist, then I begin with our broadest confession. So something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, those are all first-order issues. There's, I'm, I'm just not going to give any ground on the Trinity or the deity of Christ. Those are first-order issues. And then we might move down from there, and we could just disagree perhaps even on what's second and third. But then if I'm talking to someone who's Baptist or Southern Baptist, I want to start with that confession as well and say, okay, well, in this conversation then, Inside our sort of, our sort of Baptist walls, uh, let the BFNM 2000 sort of begin to set some of that trajectory. So, at, if I'm talking to Baptist in that conversation, baptism by immer immersion for believers is a really important issue for it's a sine qua non for Baptists, as it were. It's not for all of Christians, but it is for that context of Baptist. At the same time, we may disagree on small groups versus Sunday school, and we're not going to we're not going to you know break favor over it or even break fellowship over it. But we may just disagree as a third order issue. As you said, it's the middle ground that's difficult, and especially in today's time um, and in our current cultural moment, it's not just uh, deciding what theological matters are second, but where do cultural matters fit? And that's probably another question for another day, but the, the cultural piece is the hard piece in the triage. I, I would agree with you there. In fact, I would suspect that we'd go so far as to say that there's a lot of people who would agree with every word that we said about the theological triage, but they find that they're very quick to disagree and have strong disagreements in those cultural and social issues. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to Christ and Culture today. If you have uh, want to ask us a question or you have a question, let us know on social media with the hashtag Christ and Culture. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast or share the podcast with a friend. And we'll see you again next week.